1: So we're looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 18. One commentator uh, called it one of the most obscure chapters in Isaiah. Uh, but I think uh, the more you study, the more you understand the circumstances, not only is it not obscure, but it actually is very applicable to our present day. We are in the middle of a series of oracles that the prophet Isaiah uh, has given uh, to the surrounding Gentile nations. And the nations... Of the, of the world make up an astonishing and a brilliant, a beautiful mosaic to the glory of God. God has created different races, different tribes and languages and peoples all over the world and together they make up the human race and they bring great glory to God. Some peoples are characterized by their physical strength, some by their military prowess, some by their intellectual achievements, philosophy or science, some by their exquisite artistry some by their skill in in trade or in travel. All of these uh, proclivities, these tendencies, bring glory to God, the amoral ones. And the differences between the tribes and the peoples and the nations were built into the original genetic code of one man, Adam. And the Apostle Paul told us in Acts 17, 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Actually, God did that twice because you know that he destroyed the entire world in a flood. And so again, through one man, Noah, the entire human race is developed. Now, the differences between the races have come about by the magnificent variety that God built into the genetic code of that one man, Adam, or that one man, Noah. Differences between the races, therefore, comes from God and brings him glory. Pride between the races comes from sin and dishonors God. Race is from God. Racism is from sin. Now, racism may be defined as the belief that one race is inherently superior to another and that race is the primary determining factor of human traits. Closely linked to racism, of course, are all sorts of bad behaviors prejudices and oppressions and violence and discrimination that one group foists on another because of racial differences. Now, the 20th century, I think, saw the purest form of this evil of racism in the Nazi movement and their Aryan convictions. That they were the purest and the best race on the face of the earth and everyone else was inferior to them, if not actually subhuman. They believed themselves to be genetically superior and everyone else genetically inferior. And they took that ideology on the road through military conquest until they were finally defeated by the providence of God. But that doesn't end the issue of racism itself. This country struggles with it. The end of slavery in the United States did not end the suffering of the African people who were stolen from their homelands. They've had to face racism ever since. Christian faith is diametrically opposed to racism, because racism is inherently based on pride. And if we haven't learned anything from the book of Isaiah, we can learn this God hates pride, He hates it. Pride is a root of all sin. That me ism. One thing I've noticed about racism is that people tend to celebrate the race they're from. Have you never noticed that? I've never found anyone that was a racist on behalf of another race, it was always their own race that they felt was superior. So therefore, I think racism is really a form of self-worship. It's really a form of idolatry. And it is evil. Now, we Christians, we know that. We know that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? Every single one of us depends on the shed blood of Christ to have any standing at all before our Creator. It is because Jesus shed His blood that we have access into the throne of grace. Amen? And in that way, all of us are together. We all need a Redeemer. And praise God, that Redeemer is available. Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of the whole world, of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. It says in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, they sang a new song up in heaven, speaking of Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests. To serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And notice it's a kingdom, not a multiplicity or a mosaic of kingdoms. We will be one in Jesus, amen? And we will serve the Lord forever. That's where we're heading. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, Isaiah 18 is an oracle about one tribe, one nation, the Cushites, And the political events with Assyria have led that distant nation from Africa to send envoys to Jerusalem to seek an alliance with, I believe it's King Hezekiah, and the Jews. The Cushite envoys come with a purpose, but God speaks through this prophet Isaiah concerning God's larger purposes. God's doing something much bigger than defeating the Assyrians. He has a bigger purpose for the Cushites, and he has a bigger purpose for the whole world. And that's what this seven-verse oracle is speaking about. In this brief oracle, God reveals his delight in the Cushites. He has a pleasure in them. He enjoys their uniqueness and their distinctiveness. And he speaks a word as a pleased or as a delighted creator about them, not just concerning their little political mission, their military mission, but about, I believe, their future and bringing gifts to Almighty God in Jerusalem. And I think that speaks a spiritual purpose of God's desire to bring them to faith in Christ through the spread of the gospel. And so ultimately, the cure for racism is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. we're not going to have any of that in the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm looking forward to that. To be free forever from racism and, frankly, from every vestige of pride. To be so completely humble and immersed in a sea of worship that Jesus deserves for what he's done at the cross. But this brief oracle, we see the delight, the pleasure of God in Cush and his plans for them. And it begins with these envoys coming from Ethiopia. Now I know that Isaiah 18 is not primarily about racism, and this sermon's not going to be about it. I'm going to give careful exegesis to it, and I'm going to describe the political situation. But I tell you this, I think we ought to take every opportunity we can to find out the evils that surround us, and that may even still be in our own hearts, and preach clearly the truth. So that God can be glorified. Sin always brings misery. Brings misery to those who have that locked within their hearts and also to those who receive the bitter fruits of it. And so therefore, we're going to focus on Isaiah 18 and understand the glory of God in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So the envoys are coming from Cush, uh, Ethiopia. Now in modern uh, history, Ethiopia, we think of as a land of starvation and weakness. But in Isaiah's day, the Cushites were a nation to be reckoned with. They were a rising power in Africa. After the flood, as I mentioned, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And through them, God would repopulate the entire earth. Cush was the eldest son of Ham in the table of nations, Genesis 10:7). His brother Mizraim was the Hebrew name for Egypt probably the ancestor of the Egyptians. Now, Cush seems to have settled further south along the Nile River. From him came Seba and Havilah and Sabta, Rama and Sabtika. All of them seem to have settled in Arabia. But some of his descendants seem to have crossed the Red Sea and settled in what we know as Ethiopia. Now, one of Cush's descendants was Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior and who founded what became Babylon and what became Nineveh. Two centers of godless empire building. The Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, coming eventually from these cities that Nimrod, Cush's descendants, planted. Now, according to Ezekiel 29.10, the southern border of Egypt was its common boundary with the Cushites, with Cush. This was the land of the Nile River, stretching almost 2,500 miles straight by air. But because of its twisting, meandering course, the Nile River, over 4,000 miles long, the longest river on the face of the earth. The Nile Valley was formed as water cut its way through the sandstone and the limestone. And it made cataracts or waterfalls, which interfere with navigation but section off portions of the river. And in those various uh, valleys and basins and areas, peoples formed, and the Kushites were among them. Cushites settled the region of the fourth cataract or wa- a waterfall and there they flourished. Now some commentators believe that the queen of Sheba or the queen of the south in the, in the uh, NIV in the New Testament was actually a Cushite who came from this very region. She heard of Solomon's fame and came to see all that Solomon had done. And there uh, formed a link somewhat then between the Cushites and what God was doing in Jerusalem. The glory he was spreading through the Davidic kingship. David and Solomon, and she was overwhelmed. Now, as the Old Testament era ended, there is a tradition, perhaps a myth, that it was the Cushites that rescued the Ark of the Covenant. No matter what Indiana Jones thinks, there are some Ethiopians that say they've got it. It's in uh, an Orthodox temple, and you can't see it, but they take care of it. Now, I don't know what it would do, a good it would do to see it, God is not in the business of leaving us physical artifacts for us to focus our worship on. He actually tends to destroy those things, like the bronze serpent that was destroyed because it had become an idol. But at any rate, there is that tradition, and you can follow that in the internet or whatever would be interesting to you, but they say they rescued the lost Ark of the Covenant, and they still have it. Well, around the time of Isaiah, somewhere around 720 to 715, the Cushites got so strong that they were able to basically conquer Egypt and take it over. They set up the 25th dynasty, and they ruled until the middle of the uh, 600 B.C. era, around 633 uh, B.C. So they were in charge of Egypt at this time. And now these Ethiopian rulers were sending emissaries to Judah to organize an anti-Assyrian coalition. Now let's set the uh, stage in terms of the geopolitics of the region. Palestine, ancient Near East, that area of of Judah and Israel and all those tiny little uh, kingdoms was between two mighty empires at the time the Assyrian Empire to the north the Egyptian Empire to the south the Assyrian Empire to the north was between the two rivers the Mesopotamian region literally means between two rivers it was a fertile area and because of the fertility of the soil they were strong and powerful militarily and culturally and they sought to take that dominance on the road and build as they did the Assyrian Empire in the south was Egypt and again because of the fertility of the soil through the Nile River Uh, They were strong and powerful and able to project their power as well. And between these two empires was this little region called Palestine. It was the playground, the battlefield, the chessboard between these two empires. And there's always stuff going on, always intrigues, emissaries, and, and alliances being formed. And this was an opportunity for such an alliance. During this time, the Kushites, having gained control of Egypt wanted to link up with this Judean king. I believe it was King Hezekiah. And so they send emissaries to try to make an arrangement and an alliance against Assyria. And so they show up in Jerusalem, but there's a prophet there named Isaiah. And he's got something to say about this mission, this, uh, these envoys, these emissaries. He's got a prophetic word to speak about the future. And so he speaks it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Woe to the land of whirring wings! says the prophet Isaiah, along the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by sea and papyrus boats over the water. Go, swift messengers, to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. This is the land of whirring wings. You can almost hear them, the tzitzi fly, or perhaps other types of flies. There are lots of flies in Egypt uh, along the marshes, where the reeds grew. And and these folks come from the rivers of Cush, a land, it says, divided by rivers. So Isaiah's oracle reaches to a land over 1,500 miles away, a land populated by people very different from the Jews, a land that God intended to conquer someday with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They send envoys, as mentioned, Cush taking control of Egypt sends envoys to curry favor with King Hezekiah, and they come in these little papyrus boats. They're lightweight boats, and if you're going to travel uh, through the cataracts, through the waterfalls, it's good to have a boat you can carry. So these are these lightweight boats made of reeds or grass, and that's how they come. They're designed to travel lightly and quickly, and they had traveled an enormous distance to make their case to King Hezekiah, to check the power of the Assyrians, perhaps even to defeat uh, the Assyrian Empire. But Isaiah sends the envoys back home with a message. He sends them back, goes swift messengers to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by the rivers. Now, the Lord here, through Isaiah, describes the Cushites with a pleasure, the pleasure of the Creator. He delights in the Cushites. He enjoys them. He enjoys their uniqueness, their attributes. I have the sense almost of the way God, through in the book of Job, describes different physical uh, aspects of His creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the stability of the earth, or different animals that He's created and their attributes. And God has a pleasure here in all of His people. He delights in them. And look at this, the descriptions. First of all, they're swift, they're just good runners. Uh, in the time of the rebellion against uh, King David by Absalom was a Cushite man that wanted to run and bring the news that Absalom was dead and the rebellion had been destroyed. You remember that. They're long-distance runners. They do very well in the Olympics. Have you noticed? It's the Ethiopians that win the 5,000 and the 10,000 and the marathon if they can. Uh, they're great runners and have been for a long time. They're swift. And they're tall. And they're smooth-skinned. And they are people feared far and wide. These envoys represented an unusually tall people. As a matter of fact, some research uh, that I did uh, listed some tribes in Ethiopia and the Sudan as the tallest people on the face of the earth, statistically. In the case of, of one of these tribes from that area, males can have an average height of six feet four inches tall, women six feet tall. They're tall people, and they're powerful militarily. Herodotus, the first Greek historian called the father of history, uh, visited Egypt around 460 to 450 BC. And he said this, he wrote this about the Ethiopians. He said, the Ethiopians to whom this embassy was sent are said to be the tallest and handsomest men in the whole world. In their customs, they differ greatly from the rest of mankind and particularly in the way they choose their kings. For they find out the man who is the tallest of all the citizens and of strength equal to his height, and they appoint him to be ruler over them. So that's a unique way to choose a leader. Uh, It's the very same thing they noted about Saul, though, that he was a head taller than any of the other people, so it's not unheard of that the tallest man, the most powerful man, is going to be the king. It says of them that they're smooth-skinned. Now, the Egyptian priests shaved themselves head to toe once every three days. But these people didn't need to do that. They were smooth-skinned already and had no need to shave themselves. And they were, as as we said, a people feared far and wide. They were aggressive militarily and strong. As we said, they'd already taken control of Egypt, and that was no small accomplishment. Ancient historians tell the story of some Persian messengers who went to the Cushite king to discuss a possible alliance with him. This is in the era of the Persian Empire. And the Cushite king brought out a standard bow that that their archers used, but the bow was unstrung. And he challenged the Persian messengers to string the bow. And none of them could do it. And he said, basically, when you're able to send men who can string one of our bows, then we'll talk about an alliance. They're powerful and strong and, you can see, also a little prideful. The modern website speaks of the Ethiopians as the only black nation in history never to have succumbed to slavery or colonial rule. The Italians, British, Dutch, Portuguese, Turks, Spanish, Arabs, and French tried 27 times to conquer Ethiopia, but failed every single time. Yet they easily defeated all other African tribes and empires to carve out a niche for themselves in the Horn of Africa. This speaks of military prowess and the power of this small nation. And because of this, and because of God's plans for Assyria, God is issuing them a warning. Military aggression... Ends in destruction. You take what you have and you start spreading out. You start conquering other people. You're going to come under my judgment. That's what the woe is at the beginning of the chapter. He's giving them a warning. And he's going to do it more than anything through what he's going to do to the Assyrians. So if you have plans to conquer the world, put them aside. Because God has his own plans to conquer the world. And you're just going to be running head to head with him. So that's the warning that he gives to this amazing people. And what is this message? Look at verses 3 through 6. The message to the peoples of the world. All you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. This is what the Lord says to me, I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches. They will all be left uh, to the mountain birds of prey, to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer and the wild animals all winter. Something magnificent, something noteworthy is about to happen, says Isaiah. The message is given to all the nations of the earth. And why? Because they all have the same ambition. They'd like to conquer the world if they could. Now, some nations find themselves in a position to try. But he's addressing all peoples of the earth concerning this ambition. God is going to do something dramatic, as if he's saying, drum roll, please. Pay attention to what I'm doing. The nations of the world are going to sit up and take notice of what God's about to do. When a banner is raised on a bare hilltop, people from miles around can see it. When a trumpet sounds clearly and loudly, people from miles around, they can hear it. The Lord is going to communicate something to every tribe and language and people and nation of his great power. And at this point, it seems the seemingly silent God speaks at last. It seems that God isn't even there sometimes. Is he even there with the natural disasters and with the rise and fall of the empires? People have asked that again and again when suffering and tragedy comes. Is there even a God? It seems like he's not even there. People cry out to him and there's no answer. It just seems like he doesn't exist to some. But he's there. Oh, he's there. And right from the very beginning of this book, we have spoken these words, that God is there and He is not silent. Isaiah 1 and verse 2. Listen, O heavens, hear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And so here in this oracle, verse 4, this is what the Lord says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Oh, he's there and he is powerful and he's watching, it seems, very quietly. He's like the rising heat. You wonder if he's there, but you can perhaps occasionally see the shimmering and you think, all right, maybe he really is there. Now, there's a legal maxim that says silence means consent. Well, that doesn't work when it comes to God. Let me tell you right now. Just because God is silent doesn't mean he agrees. Not at all. It says in uh, in Psalm 50 and verse 21, These things, these sins, you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. Psalm 50 verse 21. Oh, but he's not altogether like us. And just because he's silent doesn't mean he agrees. Not at all. God's silence actually is time leading us to repentance. His patience is means repentance and salvation. That's what he's waiting for. Second Peter 3.15 Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Romans 2.4 Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But here God is silent like shimmering heat and like a cloud of dew, silent but ready to act. And how unlike the tumultuous kings of the earth, That we talked about last week in Isaiah 17, verse 12. Oh, the raging of many nations. They rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples. They they roar like the roaring of great waters. That's what we're like. We're noisy. But it's signifying nothing. God is silent and signifying everything. Sitting on his throne. And he sits serenely up there on his throne. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And the people before him, they are like grasshoppers. God has a magnificent plan, and that is judgment on the aggressor. Look at verses 5 and 6. For before the harvest, when the blossom is gone, and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives, and cut down and take away the spreading branches. They'll all be left to the mountain birds of prey and to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer, the wild animals all winter. This is a bit of an agricultural analogy, perhaps like a parable. There's a spreading vine and it's moving out. It's advancing itself. Its branches are moving. We might know it as kudzu, okay? Have you ever seen that? It just grows and grows. It seems like it can't be stopped. But here there's even some fruit. It's, a, it's a, a flowering and then a fruitful vine that seeks to move out. Notice he doesn't mention Assyria here directly because it's a message for all the nations. Right now it's Assyria at the time of the oracle. But it could be the Cushites too. Maybe they have ambitions for the world. It's anybody who wants to move out with military prowess and take over the face of the earth. God will stand and he will say no. He will cut off with a pruning knife those spreading branches. And what's going to happen to all of the fruit? The birds are going to come and eat it. It's a picture of desolation and judgment. It's God fighting against you. Now, the Cushite envoys have come and they're trying to play the geopolitical game. They're trying to make an alliance. They're going to stop Assyria. So you'll be thwarted. They're so clever, they're so wise. And they come to talk to King Hezekiah about making this kind of an alliance. God says, I have my own plans for Assyria. I've already made them plain through my prophet Isaiah. We already read it. Isaiah 10 and verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the prideful, willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And therefore, uh, this is verse 16 and 17, Isaiah 10, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors, and under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day, in a single day, it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. One day, just one day, he'll take care of Assyria. Now we know what that is. That's when Sennacherib uh, threatened Jerusalem, came right up against it. And God sent out the angel of the Lord. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrian troops were dead. So Cushite envoys, I don't need you. There doesn't need to be an alliance between Judah and Egypt. It's not necessary. As a matter of fact, it's sin. We'll talk about that next week. Judah doesn't need you, but you need Judah. Or more specifically, you need a savior coming from Judah. That's the message here. God knows his sovereign plan. He knows his own perfect timing. And though he is quiet, though he is silent like shimmering heat in the sunshine and like a cloud of dew, he will act when the time comes quite boldly. And so it says in Isaiah 14:25 through 27, I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who is able to turn it back? God is enough. Amen? His power is enough. What matters is what God thinks. What matters is what God is doing. Not all these plans. Trying something on our own, on the side. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is God's will. What is He doing? That's what matters. Then God gives a prophecy through Isaiah. The envoys are looking for some kind of a political arrangement. Actually, let me tell you what's going to happen with Cush. There's going to come a time they're going to send gifts from the ends of the earth... They're going to send it to Zion, and they're going to worship the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 7. At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth-skinned, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by the rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. Oh, the gifts will be sent. By envoys, They're going to come back and they're going to come to worship. The Cushite envoys first came to recruit for a military alliance. Uh, These powerful peoples are described for a second time. God just can't seem to get enough of saying these words. He just enjoys the Cushites. He likes talking about them. But at that time, those Cushites are going to send gifts and they're going to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're going to worship at Mount Zion. Now, there is a physical fulfillment of this. In Second Chronicles 32, don't turn there, but Second Chronicles 32, verses 21 through 23, this is what it says. The Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. So that's the defeat of Assyria. One angel, the angel of the Lord, gets sent out and he gets defeated. He withdraws to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with a sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. That's the banner raised up on the bare hilltop. That's the trumpet blast that all nations will hear. And they did hear. This was Assyria. This was Sennacherib. This was almost 200,000 troops killed in one night. Wow, the nations sit up and take notice. He took care of them on every side. 2 Chronicles 32:23. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. So they're going to physically come after Assyria gets crushed and the Cushites are going to bring gifts. And they're going to link up. Perhaps it's enlightened self-interest. It's good to be on the good side of the Jewish God, we've noted. And so they want to worship. And so they bring gifts. And that's what Isaiah is predicting. But I think he's predicting far more than that. Oh, by the way, just a note about Hezekiah. At that time when he's receiving ambassadors and people coming from all over and they're bringing gifts, his heart gets puffed up with pride. Can you believe it? Oh, how pestilent is human pride. And Hezekiah is like, ain't I something? (laughs) What did Hezekiah do? When he heard of an overwhelming Assyrian force, he got down on his face and pleaded with God to save the remnant that still survived. In sackcloth and ashes, he begged God for deliverance and God sent it. That's all. He had the good sense to know that he had no chance if God didn't intervene. That's all. But so Hezekiah receives these emissaries. And 2 Chronicles 32, 25 says, Hezekiah's heart was proud and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Can I just urge you by way of application? Search out pride in your life and destroy it wherever you find it. Wherever you find it. Uh, Start looking in certain places like when good friends give you some advice on how you can do better. Uh, Like, for example, your spouse might have some input on how you could improve some area of your life. There's a chance for you to find out if there's any pride in your heart. Oh, there are many such opportunities. Look at your ambitions. Look at your hopes and desires. What are you driving for? How many of them are traced back to your own pride? Search it out and destroy it, friends. I need to do the same. But God's ultimate end for the earth, why does he put up the banner? on the bare hilltop. Why the trumpet beaconing? Because he wants to be worshipped, friends. He wants you to forget yourself. He wants you to turn away from your own petty little interests, your own empire building. And he wants you to get down on your face and worship him and delight in him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's doing. And so those little gifts that are brought by the Kushite emissaries after the Assyrians die, that's just a symbol, friends. That's yet another prophecy is all it is. It's a prophecy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth and the true gifts come from the nations, that's the people themselves, bringing their own hearts, their own bodies, prostrate before God and saying, Here I am, presenting to, to God a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing themselves. That's the gift. And they're going to they're come from all over the earth. Now, God's original purpose in calling Abraham... The father of the Jews, he said this in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, just wait till next week. Wait till next week when, in Isaiah 19, we talk about how God says this. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. And Israel, my inheritance. Wow, that brings goosebumps. That God would actually call Egypt his people. Yes, he will. In the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God has some specific purposes for the Cushites. They're going to come and they're going to bring gifts. They're going to come and worship the true God. Psalm 68 says, Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10 says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and may serve Him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond, listen, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered peoples will bring me offerings. Isn't that sweet? Zephaniah 3, 9 and 10. God is predicting that some from the Cushites will come and worship Him forever. God's ultimate aim, then, is worship from all nations isaiah 5210 says the lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our god and isaiah 60 11 through 13 says your gates will always stand open they will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations their kings led in triumphal procession for the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish it will be utterly ruined the glory of lebanon will come to you the pine the fir and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary and i will glorify the place And it says in Isaiah 56, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's God's purpose in Isaiah. That's God's purpose to the ends of the earth. Now, there is a, a brief New Testament fulfillment to all this, isn't it, sweet? In Acts 8, an Ethiopian eunuch has gone up to worship. He's gone to the temple to worship. Why has he gone there? He's heard of the fame of the Jewish God. And he wants to worship He is an important official in in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He's an important man. He's gone there for the old covenant worship. He's taken part in the animal sacrificial system. He's on his way back riding in his chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Oh, Isaiah has converting power, my friends. And so there he is reading Isaiah the prophet. And this is what it says. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what he was reading. Can't choose a better portion of Isaiah to be reading, especially if you're unconverted. And so he's reading Isaiah and he's reading about Jesus Christ. The substitute, the son of God who came to shed his blood, but it didn't make any sense to him. Who is this man who died? Who is this suffering servant? Well, the Holy Spirit leads an emissary, an envoy, a messenger, a missionary named Philip. One of the seven, one of the original seven. God laid on him by an angel and by the indwelling spirit. Go down to that desert road. I've got a work for you to do. And he sees the chariot. He runs up alongside it and jumps in. I think actually the Ethiopian invited him in first, all right? You need to be invited in. So you need to build that connection relationally. But he said, what are you doing? I'm reading. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he says, unless someone explains it to me. Please evangelize me. Friends, don't miss one like that. (laughs) You actually ought to pray for them. If you're not really being that fruitful in evangelism, pray for an easy one. You know what I mean? A big uh, slow pitch right down the center of the plate you can knock over the fence. Ask for something. Say, God, give me an evangelistic opportunity equal to my immaturity and lack of courage and boldness. He'll answer that prayer. But he's saying, I need someone to explain Isaiah 53 to me. Can you do it? Oh, you need to be ready for that moment. I can do it. God sent his son. His name is Jesus. He entered the world, he lived a sinless life, he did great miracles to prove his deity. He taught great things to prove his wisdom. The greatest thing he did of all was he took our sins on himself. He was our substitute. He died in our place. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's talking about Jesus. Oh, The Ethiopian man was drawn in. What do I do? What do I have to do to be saved? Repent and believe. Friend, you may have come here today by the provident hand of God and you're not saved. You don't know the forgiveness that this Ethiopian eunuch found? Oh, find it in Christ. It's the same message. Then gifts will be brought by you, not just by the Cushites, but by you to Almighty God. Simply repent and believe in Him. Trust in Him. The Ethiopian man, he did it. He said, look, here's some water. Why couldn't I be baptized? No reason. So they stopped the chariot. Right there and then, Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, immediately the Lord took Philip away. Disappeared. Poof. Now that's an exciting moment in redemptive history. Whoa, where'd he go? He's gone. The Lord dropped him at Azadus and he continued his preaching ministry there. But uh, the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He went down to Ethiopia where Irenaeus tells us that he continued in evangelistic ministry himself. We don't know anything more about this man. He drops from the pages of history. I can't imagine, however, that he didn't go back and lead many to Christ. See, God has plans for Ethiopia. In the 4th and 5th century A.D., after the gospel had already started to spread around the world, a shipwreck brought two men to the Cushite kingdom, and those two eventually led that king to faith in Christ. And Athanasius sent one of them back as the first bishop, Orthodox bishop, and he set up the church there in Ethiopia, and so the gospel was planted in Ethiopia. But friends, that's in the past. That's in the past. What's in the future? I'll tell you what's in the future. The New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth and its gates are going to stand open night and day. And it says in Revelation 21, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Those are the gifts that are going to be brought from a people tall and smooth-skinned, a people feared far and wide whose land is divided by the rivers, an aggressive nation of strange speech, they're going to bring gifts eternally into the New Jerusalem. Amen? So what application can we take from this? Well, let's start with this. Believe in the gospel as the Ethiopian eunuch did. Believe in it the first time today for the forgiveness of your sins. And continue to believe in Christ. He is the focus of Isaiah. He's the focus of all the scriptures. Secondly, Be ready to preach the gospel as Philip did. Are you prepared? Suppose he were reading something a little more obscure than Isaiah 53. Would you be ready? Are you ready to share the gospel? Get yourself ready. Pray that prayer. I mean, you can laugh, but pray it. Say, Lord, make me a witness today. Give me a chance. I'm weak. He knows you're weak. Lord, I've been fruitless. He knows that. Oh, God, give me a chance today to witness. Help me to be ready. And pray for the advance of the gospel. Not just in Cush in Ethiopia, but to the ends of the earth. God has plans for people from all over the world. Pray for it. Get involved in it. And delight in the races as God does. I have a theory. I was talking to Matthew Hodges about it this week. I have a theory that, that we will have our racial distinctions up in heaven, in the New Jerusalem. I think we'll retain them. I just think God loves variety. I think he created them for his own glory. And that's why there's people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so it says in Revelation 7, 9 and 10, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, that's the end of racism there, friends. It's gone. We will delight in the variety of what God has done. People will be coming from many different roads, many different places, to believing in Christ. And finally, despise racism as God does. Be open to what God is doing through this church in the urban ministry. Get involved in it. Ask Matthew how you can get involved in the urban ministry. We have a health fair coming up. Get involved. Wouldn't it be delightful to see as much as possible here in this local church the variety that we're going to see in heaven? Close with me in prayer.